Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret – Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, I'm joined by David Lines, writer and creator of the brilliant book Modfather, My Life with Paul Weller. A journey that started when David first heard This is the Modern World by The Jam, and it sparked off a love affair that continues to this very day. You're going to love this one. It's a real emotional roller coaster as well. So strap on in. Let's get into it. David Lyons, thanks for joining me. It's absolutely my pleasure. You are more than welcome, Daniel. There's a big build-up in this, not least just between the two of us, because we've been talking about this for so long. There's no way this can disappoint, because there's so much for us to talk about. It's um, it's truly exciting. Obviously, we're going to focus on The Mod Father, My Life with Paul Weller, the book, and how that all came about. This kind of ode to Paul Weller and this obsession of yours, which started back when you were, well, just before your 13th birthday. Yeah, it was. We lived in Garforth. Back in the day, it was a village. I mean, now it's a commuter belt in itself. When we moved up north, we ended up in the shadow of a mining town. Even though we were only 25 minutes on a bus from Leeds, we were in a little suburb and I went to the record library and I got This Is A Modern World. I blew my pants off. It completely <laughs> blew me away. I, think, I still think Life From A Window. You know, at the end of this, when you say to me, which song can you take? And maybe it's Life From A Window. I don't know. There's some brilliant stuff on that second album. I love This Is The Modern World. And I got my bike tape, you know, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put some arrows on my shirt from the sleeve. It blew me away. It was a different, it was a different sound. You know, I, I loved everything about it. I loved the look and the attitude. And it just, it was a password into a secret world. And it was a modern world. An arriving album too. So you've got three albums out of the library and you have them for three weeks. Is that right? What, can you remember what the other two were? I can't. I've got no <laughs> idea. They were completely irrelevant and soon dropped off the radar. But you tried to get in the city, which wasn't available. Somebody already had that out on loan as well, didn't they? Oh, yeah, I do remember that now. I do remember that. You can put your name down. Well, no, I love the fact you've kind of started album two, which many people, uh, even like, big solid jam fans, a lot of them lukewarm about that second album. And we've not talked I about that. I love that second album. 
I, lo- I loved in the city. I didn't realize that it was in a tube section. I thought they were in a shower, <laughs> you know, on the sleeve. Yeah. It took me for years to realize that they were in an underground station. I thought they were in a shower together. And you talk in your book about the fact that it, it, you felt like you'd found a new friend for life in Paul Weller, which I love because I think that was my connection in 1991, 92, when I heard, oh, yeah. What was it that really connected about you? Obviously, it's a combination of the music and the lyrics, but also when you first start reading about him and seeing stuff in magazines and things, it's, it's the whole deal for you around Weller, wasn't it? It was just like finding a brother, you know, without being too dramatic about it. And I'm, I'm trying to give you some comedy as well, but I'm also trying to give you the real insight. Without, I don't want to be too lappy about it. Yeah, it, obviously, it, it, it was a look... It was just those chippy quotes in the NME and sounds. It was a different world then. You couldn't connect with people the way you do on socials now. You could only get snippets. Kind of touches back as what you talked about at the beginning about where you grew up and where you are. Because presumably those those lyrics connect with you in a similar way to what Paul's writing about Woking and and those kind of suburban towns and stuff. And youth. Yeah, you're a young kid, and this is the first time a band's come along that feels young, and there's that energy, and that so that that connection comes from that as well, I'm guessing. Yeah, it does. A lot of it's about being an outsider, I suppose. Even though it's not a huge geographical chasm that we've crossed, moving from the Midlands up into Leeds, people will come up to me and say, "Are you a Cockney?" And I go, "No, I'm not. I'm from Nottingham. Where's Nottingham then? Is that in London?" So West Bridgford is in the shadow of Trent Bridge Cricket Ground, and the connections that I had with Paul came through my father because my father was an accidental mod. I didn't know it. So my father had five jobs on the cusp of us coming up north. The reason we moved up here was for money. And my father, uh, he was a barber because my father's father was a barber. And my father used to cut Brian Clough's hair when he was manager. He, we did. My father used to cut Brian Clough's hair when he was at Forest. I'm trying to remember if Brian had, Clough had a decent haircut or not. No? <laughs> if, my father, if, if my father did it, it was a great hair. It was a great hair. So as well as being Brian Clough, as my father being Brian Clough's barber, um, at night, Dad used to go and sell insurance, door-to-door insurance. And he had a Honda C90, which was a moped, but it died. So we looked through the exchange of Mark and he went and got himself a Lambretta. But when he went to pick it up, it had all the mirrors and all, all, all the stuff on it. So you've got a guy who specializes in haircuts. He's bought this fucking hairdryer to zoom around Bridgeford on, selling insurance door-to-door at night. And he's also, on a Saturday, he's running the local dry cleaners. So we've got clothes, hair, and a scooter, all by accident. <laughs> then we move up north for more bread. And what do we find? We find a record library. And what's in the record library? The jam. All of a sudden, all those dots, they joined up. I've nice. got the complete picture. <laughs> I like it. You talk about your dad being a barber. You weren't always a fan of his hair cutting abilities, right? No, not at all. No, not, not at all. I hated it. it. It was torturous. Can you see? I've got this. When my hair gets out of control, I've got, they call it a cowlick. He used to style it like that, like Billy Bleeding Fury. He, he had like a, a, a kind of Richard Burton haircut. Dad had a Burton haircut. He tried to mould me into the same haircut. But I had this cowlick, which made me look like some demented teddy boy from the 1950s waltzing around. And of course, when you buy into the jam, you don't just buy into Bruce and Paul and Rick, you buy into the look. It's all out. It's the whole thing. I can't be a jam fan with a teddy boy haircut. <laughs> can I? So that that... 
So the jam obviously connected those dots up between me and my father, but they also separated us because hair was the great connector and now it's the great divider. As soon as I took this is the modern world. Out of the record library, the hair. I, I reclaimed the hair. Because <laughs> it's only inspired you. Look, you were into like straight into the, the straight leg Levi's, the Fred Perry's. There's this connection with Paul that's not just linked to the music, like we touch on. And the desert boots. Oh, oh yeah. Affordable desert boots. And I the think, jam shoes and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The bowling shoes and the jam shoes. I remember seeing them at one gig. I can't remember which one it was, but the, we were in the queue outside. Me and Rick. God bless Rick Bam. We went to see the jam. I can't remember where we were. So so many times but I was in the queue outside and there was a bloke standing next to me in the queue and you remember that you could get like blue bowling shoes red bowling shoes you got the black and the white and he got he got a blue one with a white stripe on one foot and a red one from another pair with a white I was so impressed because <laughs> he'd made, taken that look and he'd made it his own I'd never seen Paul with a blue one or a red one or a black one this guy had taken it to another level it was about texture. You know, you can add textures, make it your own. That was the whole thing about modern, and it still is. It's very personal. Tell me the story about cutting your own hair, because it's in the book, but it's hilarious. So this is around the time of uh, Town Called Manists, uh, and this is where the jam started to make it very, very big. And I knew that I'd lost them at this point, because I was in the news agents, and you could buy this big point. It was like a, a magazine about the jam, cashing in on the fact that with... Malice, they'd hit the big time. They were obviously making big money and they'd become a super group. It's very easy to forget that the jam were the people's group. But you have to remember that at the time they were filling Wembley like however many nights at the end. They were, you know, these days they would be as big as, oh, I don't know, Coldplay. And Coldplay are massive. I think one of the things that people these days forget is that they managed to cross that bridge with between being incredibly important and meaning everything to everyone, but for their own particular individual reasons. And yet at the same time, be one of the biggest money-making machines in the entertainment industry. Big thing to remember that. I was in the news agents and I saw this magazine, bought it, took it home, read it, it folded out into this big fan zing thing with photos and interviews and dun 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 dun. And that was when Paul's Hair became a thing. Uh, up until then, it was just a mod haircut, you know, different variations. But then it, it, he went full Steve Marriott, didn't he? It was always like, is it a male beehive? <laughs> well, that's the peacock kind of look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I tried, I tried to emulate that. I tried to emulate that. But of course, I've got a cowlick. And um, I said to Rick, we were out at Rick's house. Rick lived in this huge house, terribly well. His father was a relief bank manager. So when bank managers went missing, He's the guy you call. Let's call Rick's dad. So I was around at Rick's house, and I'm trying to get – I've got the the boating blazer. I've got my my gem shoes. I've got my Levi's. I've got my Frick Perry. I've got everything, but I haven't got the hair. I haven't got the hair. And, of course, I've got this cowlick, and I said to Rick, do you know what? To get the proper pull look, I think I need you to iron my hair for me. Hair straighteners didn't exist. I'll lay down. I'll just lay my head against the ironing board. And what I want you to do is put the iron on, but not too hot. Don't put it on too hot. Put it on. Is there a cool? And you can see how oh, there's a cool. So we put it on cool, and he's about to. And you went, no, no, hold on, stop. He's got that. He's got the iron, and it's just about, just about to go on my hair. And he's like, stop. You know, I've got a couple of pages from the Daily Mirror here. We'll put these on and use them as a barrier against the heat. Anyway. The nurses at Leeds General Infirmary were very, very helpful. 
Brilliant. I love it. The love affair with Paul is the biggest part. And when was it you started sending poems to Mr. Weller? Before I sent poems to Mr. Weller, I sent poems to the editor of Smash Hits, I think. Uh, well, just about, you know, life generally. It brings it full circle to that remix from Fat Pop because I sent it to Neil Tennant. Was, was Neil the editor at Smash Hits? He was in the air. He was either an editor or a staff writer. Yeah, you're right. He, yeah. he was at Smash Hits. This is absolutely God's honest. Neil Tennant, I didn't even know. Neil Tennant had been anywhere near a recording studio, studio at this point. I, th- I thought I'd become the people's poet. Uh, I was inspired by Paul to go and investigate literature and further my mind. But we'll talk about that more when we come to the Style Council. It's to, in an Adrian Mole way, I sent a poet every week to smash hits about the trials and tribulations being a a teenager in 1980 whatever after about three months of this bombardment of appalling poetry that kept arriving through the post I thought well they must be saving it up to publish some sort of anthology I know I'll give them a ring anyway I'll phone them up hello smash hits hello this is David Uh, oh right yeah, I'm the poet. I've been sending you all the poems about Paul and Bruce and Rick and life from a window. And Neil Tennant says to me, yes, we've got them all here. I suggest if you send them to sounds, I think there's much more there thing. We wouldn't be able to talk about the jam without talking about the jam live. And you mentioned that you'd seen them a, a whole stack of time. But there's this, this lovely bit in the book where you talk about how you realise that Bruce and Rick aren't simply Paul's backing band. Something happened when the three of them played together, some immense chemistry. There was an energy of its own, a fire that burned so bright inside all three of them. And I guess that, like me, they must have been lost in the music that night. The power and the glory of the jam, the raw balls of the music, didn't come from one man alone. It came from all three. Now, I think this is really important to touch on because this is the Paul Weller fan podcast, but it's really important. And I think this, you know, sometimes... There's such a huge focus on Paul, but it was, you know, it's so important the three of them made that band, didn't they? There was a proper alchemy there. I've seen Weller so many times, you know, I I couldn't begin to tell you. But those jam gigs, it was like being in a war zone. You were down at the front, couldn't get away with it these days, you know? It was literally, you were fighting to breathe. (laughs) And and, and there you are... (sighs) It's amazing that three men could produce so much raw power. Jesus Christ, that drumming. I mean, seriously. Drummers are always loud when you see a band anywhere. Even if you've got a, a, a magician on the mixing desk, drums are always way up there. But just the power and that driving bass, but also such a sensitive player. Bruce was a really sensitive bass player. He's timing. I was talking to someone about this the other night. I think they were all three natural naturally gifted musicians. So, and don't forget, they weren't much older than me. When you saw that band live, it was it was like being in some sort of vortex. It took you to a completely different level. It energised you and it transfixed you and it, it mesmerised you. And you can see how nations get talked by terrible leaders into doing despicable things. You get carried away on this wave of euphoria. Honestly, <laughs> Jesus, it is a drug, isn't it? To think. Yeah, I mean, I started going to see the jam when I was very young. But there were kids in that audience younger than me who shouldn't have been out. I, I really believe that music venues are like temples, you know, and they absorb all the stuff. It's like when somebody dies, their spirit, you can see their spirit leave. I'm sure that people leave their bits of their soul in a gig, you walk out and you feel like you've been, you know, you've really given something, you've taken something from that band, but you gave it back to them. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a two-way thing. The, the weirdest jam gig I ever saw was, I think it was on the Second Sons tour, and they gave away sleeves, album sleeves, 
on the way and don't know why. But the support act was this poet called Seething Wells. You ever heard of Seething Wells? <laughs> Look him up. Okay. Seething Wells, he was a skinhead poet. He had a green bomber jacket, the cherry reds, and bleached 501s. And he came on and started doing his poetry. He was just a rant, you know, skinhead poetry. And you got this sea of jam friends baying for Paul, Bruce, and Rick to come on. And they're standing there being given these bloody empty sleeves of setting suns for Christ knows what reason. I didn't imagine this. I, I can see it now. There's only one thing 3,000 people waiting for the jam want to do or, or can do with 3,000 empty album sleeves of setting suns. And that set fire to them and hurl them like flaming frisbees onto the stage to burn seething wells down and get the jam on. It's a miracle that we didn't burn down Bridlington Spa Pavilion, because I'm sure that's where it was. I love the fact when I talked to Rick about, he was talking about how they always tried to sound like a, a four-piece, because that was the initial thing, wasn't it? And um, But with the three of them, and you can see that with the live recordings and you know the videos we can now watch on YouTube and all that kind of stuff as well. But let's move to that front page of the NME, where Paul Weller splits the jam, because that's where you learned the news that was you walking through a news agent, seeing, seeing that, which must have been devastating. I was heartbroken, and I was naive and stupid enough not to realise that there was life beyond the jam. I thought that was it. I'd never fired a band before. I didn't think that Paul could exist outside of the jam. I thought that was it. Of course it was a love affair with the jam, but where was Paul going to go? I didn't, I honestly, I did not think... I thought that was it. It was like a death. It was a death in the family. And I was in mourning for months until he re-emerged. I, I was dizzy and sick when I read that headline. And I didn't understand it. I think it'd be like two or three days later. Um, if I was a gambling man, and I am a gambling man, I'd put money on the fact that it was a Friday night that he appeared on Nationwide with his famous Burberry talking about how he didn't want it to not mean anything. And, and, uh, and yeah, it sounds at the time, but... I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it. I, did, I couldn't get it. I didn't know what he had up his sleeve. I, I had no idea what was around the corner. I just thought that was it. And I was gutted. Really. I took it to heart because these people had molded me. They weren't just posters on my wall, Dan. They were the very bricks with which it was built. As you talk about that, I was trying to think of another example in like recent years of bands splitting and people being heartbroken. And aside from Take That, which was a while ago, um, different audience entirely. But bands don't really split it. I mean, certainly at their heights, you know, when they're right on top and they're smashing number one singles, it just doesn't happen, does it? Do you know what? It probably wouldn't even be allowed to happen these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, bands just fizzle out or they just continue. But, but also the pace of which they're releasing stuff, even Coldplay, you know, it's an album every three, four years. And then, and then a tour for two years when he comes back and it's not a massive gap but when he comes back with the style council were you there from day one was the obsession with Weller still there I, I, I bought into it immediately okay so when Paul said that he felt restricted by the confines of the jam you know when we find parallels in a film or in a painting or in a band we draw those parallels in our lives because those are the things that we want to see. You know the, the jam meant so much to so many people because they reflected your own world back at you. And yes, I was gutted when the jam split up. Instantly, I could see how it would affect me and my life. When the Star Council arrived and Paul left the jam, I left school and went to work in a university bookshop. So all those European flavours 
that the Star Council brought to their fan base. Not only did I embrace, but I lived by I went and learned French and I went to work in the French literature department of Leeds University Bookshop. So I'm learning about Molière and Maupassant and Gide and Emile Zola. You gotta remember, as soon as that French influence from A Paris comes out, where am I? I'm transported the same bleeding month, Dan. The same month, I've gone from Garforth Comp to Leeds University Bookshop. I'm surrounded by people with bloody glamswool sweaters over their shoulders and soul boys. And my God, it is like time travel. I'm on completely the same. I can see you laughing. I can see, I can see you laughing. I'm on exactly the same path as Paul. I'm, I'm back on the same path. He's left the jam. I've left school. He's gone to Europe. I'm in a French literature department. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it doesn't get any better. It's almost like you're twins, isn't it? And I love the fact that there's so much funny stuff in the book where you, the French obsession results in a name change. Oh, yeah. Uh, I stopped being David Lines. I put a very stylish accent over the E in Lines, and I became DJ Lenay. I'm Lenay. I'm DJ Lenay. David Lyons overnight becomes DJ Lenay. You were talking with someone on a previous podcast about how Paul could be like a Doctor Who and he would regenerate. Well, I regenerated into a into the French literature department the same month that Paul regenerated as a French soul boy. I meant to ask you this. If... Paul was going to be a Doctor Who. Well, I think at the minute he looks a bit like the first one. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. The French obsession is brilliant, and and you're not the first person to, to mention that. With uh, but I guess really? that's because I guess that's the whole thing, right? That Paris EP, the four tracks on it take you in completely different directions in terms of where the style council will go, whether it's an instrumental or a long hot summer or Paris match. They're all very different in style, and the, the whole um, life cycle of that band is constantly evolving. The sounds, so many different sounds. It's not like they were in one particular genre. The French obsession bit I love because not only there's an interview, a job interview, I think it is you have to have. Where where you're, you're giving the backstory of this name as if it's always existed and that is always what you've been called. But there's also the frying up of snails, you know, for your tea, <laughs> which is just... You could, funnily enough, you couldn't buy snails in Garforth in 1984 or whatever <laughs> it was. I used to go fishing with my dad and we used to go and dig up worms at the bottom of the garden. So I knew where the snails lived. I knew exactly where to find the snails. If you went down the rockery and peeled back the boulders, they were stuck to the underside. Once you flick the moss off, they were okay. I didn't like them. They didn't taste nice. But I had my taste of Paris. You bet. Bit of garlic butter. <laughs> that, that is the same. The other thing that comes through in the book, there's so many emotional stories as well. This kind of tug of war between you and um, a lot of theatre, which we'll talk about in a second as well. And, and the romance and try, trying to get laid. <laughs> you find real solace in the music of the Snell Council as well. And, and tracks like Costa Loving, A Very Deep Sea, end up meaning an awful lot to you in relation to, to your dad passing away. But that music really connects on so many different levels. It's so emotional, Dan. Uh, I'm not going to get gushy about it, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, there was a new depth to the Style Council and some of that stuff on Cost of Loving and those sweets that they did, uh, the story of someone's shoe. Man alive. It was, you've got all Debussy in there and going to work in the university bookstore opened up new life, new aspects of literature and culture. The music led you in a completely different direction. You talked about the emotional stories in The Modfather, and there were... I got lambasted by a lot of fans. Why did you put this song in? As Because every chapter in the book comes from the song title. When I put It's a Very Deep Sea in, I included that it was playing words. 
because it was about seeing cancer. And nobody ever got that. I don't think even my publisher got it. Because Dad went very quickly. So it's very deep. So, you know, you can interpret it in so many ways. But... For me, it was the big C. When you saw the, the um, I don't know if we're calling it a reunion of the Style Council or a continuation. I loved, I was, I was, uh, when when they played that song recently, they all got back together, the four of them. That must have been really emotional. Well, they played it for me. You know that, don't they? You know that. <laughs> I think Bax mentioned that on the previous podcast. It was for you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. It was, it was great. I mean, I don't know what dynamics there are in, in, involved, but you, do you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if there was an EP, would you? No, not at all. They looked like they were loving oh, every second, right? Absolutely. They lapped it up, and so did you, and so did me, and so did all of the rest of us. It was great. I thought they had so much more to give. And what's weird is you can't imagine Bruce and Rick doing that. Or, or rather, you can, but it won't happen. The Style Council lives, do you know what I mean? Still beats, doesn't it? It's a solid bond in your heart. That's what uh, it is. So tell me about the book. Where did the idea first come about? When did you go, do you know what, I want to write this this story of my early part of my life and this connection to Paul Weller? So I got an agent. I was working with David Nobbs on adapting The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin for the West End. So do you, do you ever see that TV series? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Reggie Perrin, yeah. I don't know if you were too young. For Leonard, Leonard Rossiter, right? Yeah. yeah, brilliant. You look so youthful. <laughs> I really not. I really not. But thanks. <laughs> you know that cream that you're using on your face? I'll have some of that. I knew that it was a good idea for a book. I'd been for a meeting with my agent. I pitched some terrible idea for a book. There was a magazine article. I don't know who wrote it. They'd sat down with Paul and gone through certain records from his jam phase, his council phase, and his solo phase. You go back 20 years and you'll find that article. And, and they were landmark songs from those three periods of his career. And whoever it was, was just talking him through. And that formed the basis for the interview. And I think if I'm, well, of course I'm being honest, I think I might have nicked it from that. <laughs> Seriously. I'm, <laughs> inspired I'm, by, inspired the, by. Yeah, I was inspired by a magazine article. And I thought, oh, hold on, what's this above my head? It's a big fucking light bulb. <laughs> this is the moment. I'll, there it is. It's a big light bulb. I'll take pivotal moments from my life and pin them on pivotal records from Paul's career because I felt this beating heart through the pair of us for the last God knows how many years, and I can chart my own slings and arrows of domestic misfortune by mapping out Mr. Weller's career. You have Weller on the front, a great concept and an interesting read, I'm flattered. Even before the book was published, you've got to remember, it was massive. We sold shed loads of this book, and it made me, and it also killed me as well. But as soon as the book got its ISBN, every book has an international standard book number. It's on the back of the book, near the barcode. It's also on the title page. Every book has a number. As soon as that was issued, the publicity machine kicks in. So I was published by Random House, biggest publisher in the world, and they were terrific. They've obviously got all the reviewers lined up, and I was told by my publicist, the fantastically named Charlotte Bush, that the publicity department were fighting over who was going to handle me and my book about me and Paul. I think they send the jacket out first to reviewers just so they can hook them. And they'll go, oh, this is coming out in February. And then they'll book that review in for that month's publication. I was very, very fortunate in the delay of the book because it was supposed to be published a year earlier. 
But when I delivered the first manuscript, my publisher, the mighty Susan Sandon at Random House, phoned me up again on a Friday afternoon. And she said, David, I need you to pour yourself a very large scotch. I said, Susan, why? What's up? She said, well, the book's unpublishable. Your manuscript is unpublishable. It's awful. So I had a year to fix it. I fixed it. I knew what was wrong with the book. And so did they. I needed to stop being so self-indulgent, which I still need to do in every aspect of my life and just cut to the chase. And a bit like Ronnie Corbett sitting on that bloody sofa. (laughs) Writing a book is a bit like making a film. You point the camera where the action is. And I didn't do that when I wrote the book. I just went on a meandering odyssey. I had 12 months to fix the book and I knew what I had to do. I had to trim it and I had to cut to the chase. I had to cut people out. I had to pull people in. I had to move timelines. But as I moved the timelines, and as I waited for 12 months, instead of it being published in February of the previous year, it tipped over to February of the next year. And the publication coincided with Paul getting his lifetime achievement at the Brits. So my publicity week came with a flood of promo for Paul. Paul was on everything, front cover of the Sunday Times, Independent, Mail on Sunday, TV. I don't think you could buy that publicity. And I certainly couldn't buy that publicity for my book. I got phone calls from people I haven't seen for 30 years. Hello, Dave. It's, uh, it's Andrew Carrick. Uh, I'm in WH Smith's at King's Cross. I've just counted 450 copies of the Modfather on a table as you walk in to WH Smith's at King's Cross. If I hadn't fucked up with the original manuscript, my book would have disappeared without a trace because I delivered such a steaming bad book the first time round. I bought myself 12 months and Daniel, the stars aligned. Everything collided. Me and Paul were back on track for the third time. His <laughs> lifetime achievement coincides with my lifetime in a book. You couldn't make it up. The support of a network there as the publisher to give you that advice. A bit like Weller with the mo- all mod cons, right? And Chris Parry going, the songs aren't up to scratch. And then him Absolutely. having to go away. Exactly the same thing. There's another little connection there. You say. When the book was published, it opened up so many different lines. But you were asking me about the quote on the front. Remind me of what Paul said on the front. It's a, a great concept and an interesting read. I'm flattered. Paul Weller. Well, it's a lovely quote and I'm sure it's uh, helped sell it. But you're asking me about the story behind it. Part of the book deal was that I would get a quote from Paul to put on the jacket. As I said, as soon as the publishers started sending out pre-publicity for the book, even before they sent out advanced copies, I got an email from a scout that Paul had sent to check me out. And that scout was Simon Halfen. (laughs) Simon Halfen was sent on a reconnaissance mission by Paul Weller to find out if I was kosher or not. And that involved me getting on a train, going down to London to have lunch with Simon Halfen. He arranged to meet me in an Italian restaurant in Perrin Lane. And I'm sitting there writing The Fallen Rise of Reginald Perrin. And Simon Halfen, on behalf of Paul, is sent to scope me out in an Italian restaurant in Perrin Lane. There's the fourth connection! For those that don't know, so Simon's the guy who created all the artwork for the Style Council, a lot of Paul Weller's, up until very recently, a lot of Paul Weller's solo albums and all the press ads, the front covers, everything. It feels a bit like the mod father sent, very, sent out one of, these kind of, you know, one of his crew to, to beat you up. <laughs> well, <laughs> Rough you up. 
Well, listen, when I went to the loo in the restaurant, I checked the system for a 38 snub nose. <laughs> uh, it's going okay. And I'm thinking, hey, this is Simon Halford. Every single in my singles box, or, or vast majority of singles in my have been designed by this guy. He's the design. I think he just gone into production with Sleuth. He was remaking Sleuth. So he's going up in the world big time. And I've been invited by Simon Halford. Come and have lunch to talk about my book so that he can go back and tell Paul whether this guy's a fake or a phony or it's the real thing. I don't know. You hear Weller's music everywhere, don't you? I mean, and I don't just mean in a shop or a cab or on a bus. I mean, it's like that kid in, uh, what was that film where he sees dead people everywhere? <laughs> Six Sense. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I think 30 years is okay, isn't it? First spoiler alert. Yeah. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> it's and been a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shit, Bruce Willis. Oh, damn it. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, in the, same way, in the same way that that kid saw dead people everywhere, yeah, I hear Paul's music everywhere. I used to live in a house many years ago that had cobbles outside. And when I took the wheelie bins out across the cobbles, I heard the drum roll intro to Big Boss Groove. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and whenever I am, wherever I am in the world now, when I drag the wheelie bin out, I hear Big Boss Groove. <laughs> as long as you're not breakdancing like Dennis Monday, we're all right. <laughs> How does this link to Simon Halfen? It doesn't. I just needed to give oh, you right. that, oh, right. okay. that nugget. Okay. Anyway, we have a great lunch. When the book came to publication, I told my publisher that I was pretty certain I'd be able to get a quote for the jacket. And um, as publication day, loomed. My publisher became more and more anxious. I didn't know where the fuck I'm going to get this quote from. I only said it so I could get the contract. So I get in touch with Simon. Um, Simon, can Paul give me a quote for the jacket? Now, Simon's got, I, I sent by taxi a manuscript for Simon to give to Paul and he wanted it to be tied together and all the pages numbered, which they weren't at that point. He was going, oh, bloody hell, he'll just be standing in the kitchen going, which page is this? And, oh, God, blah, blah, blah. getting it all mixed up. I get back to Simon. I say, Simon, my ass is on the line here. I, I may well have to pay back all this money unless I can get this quote from Paul. Nothing. Silence. Nothing. Nothing on the phone. No email. No knock at the door. No magic arrival of a Nothing. Nothing. Then my publicity manager gets back to me and she's like, David, you do know. But when we signed this contract, you said you'd be able to get Paul to give you a We're going to publication in 48 hours. Now the clock's ticking. You know, I can feel, I can feel the lawyers breathing down the back of my neck. Voice messages now to Simon. Simon, right. Hello, it's David. I, I, I need to talk to you about the quote for the jacket. It's going to press in the morning and, and the publisher has left a gap and the, the, they're going to have to re redesign it. The balance and the typography isn't right. I, I, I need Paul's quote. Can you ring me back? I'm not going to. I'm not going to go to bed tonight. Stay. You're probably out having drinks and being show busy and stuff. But can you ring me back with the quote, or or email me, or or, or text me, or something like anything, anything? It's the next day. I'm looking like death, and we've got like six hours before we go to print. I've got Susan Sandon on the blower. I've got Charlotte on the blower. I've got my, I've got Agent Anne on the blower. I've got my agent, I've got my publisher, I've got my publicity director, and I'm standing there with nothing. Simon, it's David. There's now four hours to go. There's three and a half. There's three down. There's two hours. 
Oh, God, I'm beside myself. Simon, it's David. Do me a favor, will you? Get this message to Paul as soon as you can. If Paul gives me a quote for the jacket, I will give him 50% of the royalties from the book. 50%. Hang up. Two minutes later, email. Ping. Cut to the screen. Incoming, Simon Halfen. Cut to me. Eyes narrow. Cut to the screen. Open email. David, what do you want Paul to say? Really? <laughs> what do I want him to say? I'll tell you what. Dear Simon, thank you very much for coming back to me. It would be great if Paul could say something like, a great book and an interesting concept. I'm flattered. Ping. Email. David, Paul says, an interesting book. And a great concept. I'm flattered. <laughs> I got my quote. I got my quote because I offered 50% of the royalties. Email. Dear David, Paul, thanks you for the uh, offer, but keep everything. All the best, Simon. Do you know what I did? I showed a little bit of respect. Nice. Nice. He didn't want the money. He just wanted me to, I, I, I suppose if it was analyzed, somebody will go, yeah, you offered something. It was the it was a gesture of offering something, not just because you've written a book about this guy. He instantly has to give you a quote. It's not the way it works. Do you know what I mean? I shall remember that for desperately seeking Paul the book. Twenty five percent, Paul. How about that? Come on. No, but he didn't want it, and that was great. But it taught me a big lesson, big big lesson that I've applied to other aspects of my life. You know, you just have to show a little bit of humility, don't you? So the book finishes at It's a Very Deep Sea, and there's obviously a lot of Weller since then. We've not gone into the solo years in The Modfather, but presumably the journey with Paul was continued. It's not like you'd switched off the tap when the Style Council was no more and that house album saw the end of it for a bit. You love all the solo stuff too, yeah? Yeah, and I think that first album, what a hook to it. I mean, you could, I remember Steve White said that, you know, if they played anything live, that would be the album to play. Because yeah. it's such a complete piece of work, isn't it? So many different influences, very jazzy. It's got air and time and space to breathe as a piece of work, hasn't it? I thought, oh, oh yeah, was inspired. And I love all that, like Bitterness Rising and Strange Museum and Into Tomorrow. It's just, oh, wow. What, yeah, what an LP that is, isn't it? it it's, it's a great LP. It's got everything going for it, including a ruffle shirt. Yes. And a big fold out poster type. Sleeve. Yeah, big fold out poster. <laughs> the book comes out, you end up going on book tours, signings, interviews, all kinds of stuff. But to actually see your work actually there on the bookshelf must have been pretty cool. It was brilliant. Yeah, it, it took you to a different world. It made you meet different people and you got media trained you so you get media tra- you wouldn't tell from this would you but you get me <laughs> so you get media trained and you meet giants of the interview world and you're first class up and down the country to tv studios and radio stations christ knows how many book signings and i did a live reading at the boogaloo in camden i, I went with my friend jason uh, i got there a couple of hours early they were selling tickets. People were buying tickets to come and listen to me read my book, Dan. <laughs> this is what I've been wanting all my life. I get out of a cab, and there's a sea of scooters parked up outside the Boogaloo Club. Every eye's on me when I walk in. I couldn't cope with it. It was unbelievable. Anyway, so it makes you, it makes you believe your own hype. You know? So you get all this stuff. And it was my 40th birthday, and I got asked to go and do an interview I think it was BBC Radio London, 
But the deal was, if I did it on this day, then they'd take me to lunch and there'd be champagne and all that kind of stuff. And it would be lovely. And we'll make a big deal of you. And I got to the point now where I was like, I'm not doing any more interviews. I'm not doing any more interviews. Get your people to speak to me. Yeah, I became like that kind of... <laughs> Proper loss in showbiz, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely lost in showbiz. I get on the train. It's my 40th birthday. I go, I'm in my reserved first class seat. I go and sit down and the train pulls out of the station and heads towards the metropolis and I look down the carriage and three tables down on the other side of the aisle there's a most beautiful woman and she's reading a copy of the Modfather. <laughs> she's reading my book I couldn't contain myself I got up I walked down the aisle I said to her, excuse me madam I'm terribly sorry to interrupt you but that's my book you're reading and she said, oh, God, I'm really sorry. I found it in the bin over there. <laughs> oh, man. Don't I bring you back down to her. <laughs> With a great big crash. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> now, tell me about Parasol. This is something that's obviously more recent. We've entered the world of music with David Laurie. Tell me about this. This has been 10 years in the making. And when Modfather was published, uh, David and I met. David's a record producer just back from the States. He's done a lot of stuff in the world of film, been nominated to all kinds of awards. Very interesting sound designer, as well as a record producer and an artist. And I'd got loads of poetry, which I kept from when I was a kid, but also was inspired by some of the spoken word stuff that Paul's occasionally done. And especially with that whole sound on 22 Dreams. That's that's where that came from. I don't have a singing voice, despite wanting to. I, I, I can't carry a tune. What I can do, or I hope I can do, is write a little bit. This album's come out, it's taken a decade to make. Big, interesting sounds, big, sweeping, emotional strings. And there's a lot of humour in it. We put the initial songs together a decade ago and it's taken a whole 10 years for us to bring, come together now and put it out but it's a bit of a homage to some of those classics but I, I've always liked I've always liked a spoken word record it's kind of um, if you were in an empty house like with no furniture and it's got these kind of echoey qualities to it. It's very intimate. You should listen to it with headphones on, you know, so it gets even more inside your head. I, I enjoyed doing it. Uh, we called it Parasol because most of the, well, all of the songs were written under a parasol, at the back of the old house that we used to have. And it was, we used to have these Sunday night sessions. Um, I had a guitar, an old acoustic guitar, which I attempted to play. Try and knock out the beats and the rhythm and the melodies, I'd write the words and David would come. I don't think he was drinking at that time. I think I was drinking at that time. I think he was just having tea. And by the third, <laughs> by, by, by the third bottle of red, I'd have to give David my acoustic and he'd take over the, the musicology of the project. There was also a reason why it was called Parasol and because it was, it was a big umbrella. It covered all of those different emotions. Some of those life and death and childbirth and marriage and divorce and having it and losing it. There's all those things that come underneath Parasol. But I was reminded about a moment when I was massively, massively influenced by the jam at my maternal grandmother's and grandfather's Ruby wedding anniversary. I had to hand out all the drinks. I was about 14, big jam fan. I was wearing my jam shoes and my Fred Perry and my boating blazer. And I had to walk around with this tray of schooners on, glass schooners full of sherry. And the sherry was, I don't think you buy it anymore, it was Harvey's Copper Beach. 
That was the only thing available. And then maybe 30 or 40 guests. Everyone was outside. And I had to walk around with this tray, handing around schooners of show. I think that was the point when I realised that me and alcohol were big mates. Because <laughs> I, I, I took, took a sip of this golden nectar. But my grandmother was a very superstitious woman. Very superstitious woman. She wouldn't have peacock feathers in the house or step on the cracks in the pavement or uh, allow a knife and fork to be crossed on a plate. And she wouldn't look at the moon through glass, either a pair of spectacles or a pair of binoculars or even a car window or the window in a house. But on the third or fourth trip in to refresh the glasses for the guests, I looked for some napkins, opened this drawer in the Welsh dresser and found these little, you remember those paper parasols? I thought I'd put some of these paper parasols in the drinks just to liven things up. (laughs) And and I I walked through the kitchen with this tray of schooners of sherry. My grandmother would, oh, David, David, get out, get out. Because, of course, I've just put 24 (laughs) umbrellas up in our house. (laughs) So I haven't gone, get out, get out, get out. (laughs) I don't stand outside with these umbrellas. It starts to rain. Everyone else comes in, but she won't let me inside as punishment. So I'm standing outside there in the rain, looking through the window, trying to keep it off with these 24 paper parasols. (laughs) So I was listening to the John Wilson cast and John Wilson was talking about Suburban 100, the beautifully produced book of lyrics that Random House published. Now, Random House published my book, The Mudfather, My Life of Pumala, and they also produced Suburban 100. And my publisher, who I always flag up, the mighty Susan Sandy, invited Weller in to talk about a book. Now, whether they wanted an autobiography or whether they wanted to put in a Boswell and produce a biography. I don't know. I don't care. But what came out of this meeting was this beautifully produced book of lyrics. And a bit like the new John Wilson podcast where he talks to McCartney about particular songs and McCartney reads through the lyrics and then discusses them at the origin and what they mean and dun, 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 dun. The same thing happens with Suburban 100. And the craft work in producing this thing, down to the weight of... But I used to work in publishing. The minute you open this thing, you feel the weight of the paper and the special laminate that they've put over the dust cover. I haven't got a copy in front of me. I think it's hand-stitched. This thing is a collector's edition. And after Modfather was published, Susan very kindly sent me a first edition through the post. Nice. With this nice. beautiful comp slip inside it. And I've got, I've got the thing shrink-wrapped. It used to be on one of my bookcases, but now it's in a book cabinet. It's almost like an inner display cabinet. And it's got these beautiful little insights and these thoughts as to the thinking behind such great classics as Private Hell and Little Boy Soldiers. And it was interesting listening to the John cast about how Setting Suns cast such, such a, a, a sunbeam. Even though you've got such huge <laughs> lyrics and they're, they're so sad and, and mournful and reflective, and they really are 1979, those setting sun lyrics. And those lyrics dominate Suburban 100. What's also fascinating about that book is that it's not chronological. And I think it's probably because it's like an anthology of poetry. You often get that when poets or, or their editors compile masterworks or overviews of all their literary work, there won't be a, this was 1979, this was 1980, this was 81. It, it's almost like a, a menu 
you know, without getting too arty about it. It's a palate thing, you know. And it's also, this is quite, I, I really believe this. When you look at words on a printed piece of paper, it's a pattern, you know. It's not just the way they read. It's the way they look. I went for a walk the other night and the sun goes down about five-ish, something like that. Before it sets, you get this silvery light, you know. From nowhere, there must have been three, four hundred crows just in the i mean where i live it's in the middle of nowhere so that's not that's not a weird thing to see okay <laughs> no seriously it isn't it isn't but as they were going off to roost and they were silhouetted against the silvery sky they looked like notes on pages of sheet music you know they were all flying crotchets and quavers <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me they made out the song Eating Rifles. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I, I think that's the thing with Suburban 100. When you look at the way the letters and the words sit on a page, they make a pattern, you know? <laughs> Suburban 100 is it, it's beautiful. And, and, and it, when I heard John talking about it, it reminded me of that time when the book was published. And it, it was such a big thing in my life. And that brought me to why... I've re-requested my song choice. Oh, okay. So first time we recorded this, you picked a song. You then messaged me like about, oh, was it the same day? And I've changed my mind. I think it was about two bottles of red wine and two hours later. <laughs> so here we are, take two. Let me set well, it up. We... You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It could be the Jam, the Style Council, or Solo. What are you going to have? What did you have last I mean... time? I can't remember. <laughs> so I went with uh, Obscure B-Side uh, Shopping. Oh, right, okay. Why? Why did I go with that? <laughs> you, were just, you were just trying to be clever, weren't you? <laughs> no! I don't need... Well, I don't know. I don't know. All right, drum roll, what are you going to have? We're going to go back to 1993. Okay. We're going to go back to the Wildwood album. We're going to go back to the special edition. We're going to go back to the demos. Okay. We're going to go back to a song on the album that, for me, is a metaphorical album because... It's a song that captures all of the moments in my life. It's all the pictures on the wall. Ah, oh, great. When I was writing Modfarm, my marriage had collapsed. My father had died and my mother was very, very ill. I'd moved into this huge house and I had to rewrite the last few chapters. And I, was, I found it very, very difficult. I started to write the book in the kitchen. I couldn't finish. In the end, I moved, it, I moved the whole work area into the dining room. And I'm sorting through all this stuff from the marital home and I've got all my photographs and family albums I'm hugely nostalgic man. I'm deeply moved by an old photograph or bus ticket or a theatre ticket or I don't know some nonsense keepsake that means nothing to everyone but is is hugely symbolic and a totem for me and in the end I've got all these family photos my mum's dad, my mum's mum and my dad's parents and people I hadn't met from the past and aunts and uncles and cousins brothers and friends and people I'd let down, people I'd, I don't know just all those people who come into your life and I'd set them without knowing about it, I'd set all these photograph frames around the dining room all these photographs all around the dining room on shelves and on walls and on cabinets and on the floor and I, what I'd didn't realize was that I created like this family amphitheater and I sat in the middle of the room at my computer finishing the book and they were all watching me every time I wrote a paragraph that I liked I stood up and I read it out to them I could see all these ghosts listening to me and that song even though it's written 
about, I imagine, I mean, I'm, not, I'm never going to try and interpret anybody else's lyrics again because they all mean something to that person who wrote them on a particular day or a time in their life. But even though it reads as a breakup song, to me it's not. It is about all the pictures on the wall and it's about all the things that you fucked up and it's about all the regret that you have uh, and it's all about the hope that you can muster from your family and friends and those loved ones and when I hear that song I don't hear it as a breakup song I hear it as a uh, big hug to all the people in your life Nice. Purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to lovely people like yourself, but it's to get that interview with Mr. Weller that I never managed during my radio career. My one big regret since leaving radio over 10 years ago now. When it happens, what should I talk to him about? Is there a question you wish that you could ask? I'd go for something really intimate. You could either go quite muso, couldn't you? Or you could go fanboy, or you could be like direct and what's the biggest regret you ever had? I'd go for that. I'd go for that. That's a good one. Did you ever get to meet Paul when you were doing the rounds on the Mudfather tour and all that? I met him in Covent Garden. He had a Lonsdale bag and a blazer on. And like you in the car park of your supermarket, <laughs> I just was an idiot. <laughs> I don't even want to talk Big fan, about big it. fan. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll gloss over those. It's, it's embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> it's horrendous. Hey, this has been so lovely, David. I've loved every second of this, man. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you ever so much. I'm flattered that you asked me. Without blowing smoke, it's a great podcast, and good luck with it. And um, keep the faith, baby. Well, there you go. I told you it would be a cracker tonight. David Lyons, my very special guest. And if you haven't yet read Mod Father, My Life with Paul Weller, get online right now and order yourself a copy. You can find all the links in the show notes for this podcast and details about Parasol in there as well. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do follow, leave a review. It helps us to find new listeners to the show and do share on your social media channels as well. You can tag me in on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of that too. And if you dig into the show notes, you can even buy me a coffee if you're a fan of as well. So do get in touch. It's at Weller Fan Pod on Twitter, or you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.